Welcome back, campers. That's Caitlin. And that's Genevieve. And we are officially in the Christmas season, which means, sorry, there's no easy way to segue this. We need to talk about a crazy ex. And let's be honest, we've all either had one or been one, or we've had that friend that everybody knew their partner should be the ex. And when we say crazy, I feel like what we really mean is toxic. And all those crazy tropes of keying someone's car or lighting a bag of dog shit on fire on their porch come from movies or Carrie Underwood songs, Caitlin, wouldn't you say? <laughs> <laughs> or maybe they come it's from Caitlin. <laughs> I plead the fifth. Well, there's nothing cute about our crazy ex story today. In fact, that phrase doesn't even cut it. We're going to have to call this individual an absolutely deranged ex. This is the tragic and terrifying story of a toxic love square because we can't even call it a triangle. The brutal murder of 24-year-old Alex Woodworth and the unhinged ex who genuinely believed that they were going to get away with murder. Lights out, campers. Oh man, the mountains call my number one. I'm just a life-size lottery ticket in the hand of the On the bitterly cold afternoon of March 23rd, 2018, a dairy farmer named Don Sipple. So cute. So cute. <laughs> sat down at around 4.15 p.m. to enjoy a quiet early dinner when a commotion erupted on his front porch. Don's dairy farm was way out in the boonies of Springbrook, Wisconsin, about 15 miles outside the bustling city of Eau Claire. Don didn't get many visitors out to the farm, so when he heard pounding on his front door and what sounded like a female voice pleading for help, he immediately was alarmed. When he opened the door, to his horror, he found a small, young woman shivering in a pair of drenched socks and no shoes with her curly brown hair plastered to her face and who looked like she quite literally burst off the screen of a slasher film. Her orange crew neck sweater was jaggedly torn open from neck to waist and her jeans were filthy and looked like they had been slashed to ribbons. She was smeared head to toe in the dirty caramel colored Wisconsin mud and Don's stomach flopped as he realized. There was also a good deal of dry blood around her mouth and what appeared to be blood smeared into her tattered clothing. To Don, she was clearly in shock and was frantically pleading to be let in and given help. The kind-hearted dairy farmer did not hesitate before ushering the shivering young woman inside. And as soon as Don had wrapped her in a blanket and sat her on his couch to get warm, the following call was placed to 911. I'm calling 911. What's the address of the emergency? This is Don Sippel calling, and I have a, a young lady that just came to my house, and somebody attacked her, and she needs a doctor. Her, her clothes are all torn, and... And what is the address you're located at? What? What is the address you are at? E7614, 430th Avenue. Okay. And is she injured? Yeah, she's injured. Her, her mouth is kind of... Uh, got some blood around it, and her clothes are all torn. Okay, and she's by herself? She's by herself. She walked to my house here just recently. Okay, and can you ask her what her name is? Just hold on a second. Okay.
What's your name, ma'am? What? You don't know? She's in kind of bad shape. She just says she don't know. Okay, let me put you on hold. Do not hang up. I'm going to start some help, okay? Sure. So when we first listened to that call, with no context of the wider story that is going to unfold, we can say we find it pretty heartbreaking because what you can hear is a young woman seemingly in extreme distress who appears to have survived something so horrific that she can't even speak properly. And this poor farmer is completely out of his element but just wants to do everything he can to help. Like on the call, you can clearly hear him say, I have a young lady that just came to my house and somebody attacked her. So she looked so rough that that was the immediate assumption, even though she can't even really speak. And initially, it's difficult for the police to ask the young woman questions because like you guys heard in the 911 recording, she's pretty scattered and appears pretty brutalized. Apparently, she can't even remember her own name, but there is one name that she keeps saying over and over, specifically someone she keeps asking for the police to call, and that person is Jason Mangle. Whenever the police ask her where she is hurt, she just repeats all over, and she also says that she can't remember anything about what happened to her, except that she remembers being afraid of someone named Alex. Now, in addition to these trickles of information, police notice a few more things about the young woman's appearance. She has three fresh and painful looking, though not very deep, cuts on her hands. She also has scrapes and abrasions on her skin beneath the shredded fabric of her jeans near her underwear and scratches on her thigh and jaw. Most bizarre, though, on her forearm, the word boy appeared to have been crudely carved into her skin with a sharp object. Ooh. Gag. That, when you read that, I felt that chill go all the way down my neck and down my leg. Ugh. That just, no. Like, I'd rather be stabbed than carved. I think it's the word carved yeah. that makes me feel so unwell oh. that is horrific thank god or thanksgiving is over uh seriously <laughs> no carving the turkey <laughs> oh. Oh. when questioned about these injuries particularly the word boy cut into her arm all the young woman could tell them was alex did it mm-hmm. at this point with all the information they had Police 100% believe that they were dealing with a situation of a victim having survived a bizarre and brutal attack, who was now so traumatized and her memory so garbled that she couldn't even remember her own name. It's a little unclear when exactly police speak to him, but they were able to place a call to this Jason Mingle person that the young woman keeps begging them to reach out to. And another couple of puzzle pieces emerge. The young woman who showed up at Don Sipple's doorstep is named Ezra McCandless, and the Alex she mentioned when she said Alex did it is 24-year-old Alex Woodworth. Jason Mingle had been seriously dating and living with Ezra, but the two of them had been broken up and separated for the last couple of months. Okay, 
So now that they had some names and with a seemingly brutalized victim in their care who claims her attack was at the hands of this Alex person, police figured they needed to track down Alex Woodworth ASAP. Over the next few hours, police left no stone unturned to locate Alex, but no one in his family or any of his friends had heard from him. He wasn't anywhere that they knew he liked to hang out, he wasn't at home, and he wasn't at the coffee shop where he worked. It was like he had just vanished off the face of the earth. Now keep in mind that all of this is happening over a matter of hours, not days or weeks. So other than the police, no one was frantically looking for Alex yet. He was a grown man with his own place and job, but his lack of whereabouts became increasingly concerning as the hours ticked by, and his phone was going straight to voicemail, and nothing was leading police in a clear direction to find him. So they made their way back to the closest thing to a lead that they had, Don Sipple's farm, where Ezra had first made an appearance. While driving along the muddy country road, still finding nothing, they took a chance and drove through an unlocked gate onto an even more isolated dirt road. The road was so muddy that they actually stopped their police car just inside the gate so that they wouldn't risk getting stuck, and they got out to look around on foot when they spotted some footprints that appeared to travel all the way down the road. Hoping this meant they were finally onto something, the police followed the tracks along the road and up the side of a hill, where they spotted a vehicle further off a ways that appeared to be stuck in the mud, with something partially hanging out of the back seat door and touching the ground. But they couldn't quite make it out, a closer look with a pair of binoculars made their blood run cold when they realized it was a body. Meanwhile, back at the hospital, because remember, all of this is happening in the matter of hours, Ezra is having a full examination performed by hospital staff, and an ER doctor makes some observations that police had not caught in the initial whirlwind of chaos on Don Sipple's farm, and believing, understandably why, that they were lurking. Lurking. <laughs> they were lurking. Something was lurking. It wasn't them. They were looking for a dangerous predator whom a victim had barely escaped from with her life. The doctor noticed that Ezra's various cuts and scratches, once her tattered clothing had been cut away and the mud and smeared blood washed off her body, were actually quite superficial. Hmm. Oh, um, funny. Hmm. To the point where they would have almost completely been healed in just a couple of days. The three cuts on her hand, which appear to be horrific due to the initial amount of blood, were actually completely superficial. And most bizarrely, the word boy, which no one knew what the fuck that was about, was noted by the doctor that it had been self-inflicted. Gag again. Gag again. Uh. And every time this doctor comes up in a sentence I just picture Patrick Dempsey and I didn't even watch Grey's Anatomy but I am on the internet you do know things I do know things <laughs> oh. because the letters were facing in the opposite direction than they would have been if they had been carved by another person and even if they had contorted themselves and Ezra 
to right them in the direction they were facing, the cuts were far too clean and, again, superficial for it to make sense. Mm. I think the clean, like that word. And if you look on the Instagram post, and you can easily find this image if you Google it, I would not recommend looking at it unless you are weirdly interested like we are but (laughs) the cut is so clean that it looks like she drew it with like a thin red tip pen yeah there's no sorry to be gross again but there's no like skin that flapping or that looks jagged it's very deliberate and precise almost like she did it with a box cutter you know like it's so like very again superficial Mm -hmm. and clean like those are two best words to describe it. yes it it looks like it was done by somebody that knew how to use a tool Mm. to write or draw Mm -hmm. which as we will go on to see this individual turned out to be just that and if y'all aren't picking up what we're putting down we did say crazy X. <laughs> we did say crazy X. <laughs> so, yeah, there's not going to be any mystery here who the the killer was, but it is interesting to note, and I'm glad that that doctor was paying attention that day and showed up to do their job. At the same time, the ER doc was getting pretty sus about Ezra's victim status, police had descended on the vehicle stuck in the mud on Don's dairy farm. A white Chevy Impala with hand-drawn artwork on the hood and roof. What did we Mm. just say? The body hanging out of the back seat with its head on the ground belonged to 24-year-old Alex Woodworth. He had been stabbed a total of 16 times in the head, neck, and groin and was pronounced dead on the scene. Oddly, there wasn't much blood at all in the car, just a few splatters and what appeared to be a muddy footprint on the ceiling, but the earth surrounding where Alex's head was touching was practically blackened from being drenched with so much blood. So now it goes without saying that police found themselves afflooring it back to the hospital. And... Like I've said before to you, Caitlin, this is pure speculation, but I like to imagine that this is like a show, and at the time that the ER doctor is, the light bulb is going Mm -hmm. on, the light bulb is going on with the police, and they're (laughs) closing in, racing back to each other so they can be like, yes, (laughs) have that moment of realization together. By golly, we've got it. Mm Mm-hmm. And Ezra's just probably laying there having a nurse stroking her fucking hair and getting a Starbucks and being like. (laughs) I just got like bad chills thinking of that. Man. And can you imagine hindsight 2020 being one of the nurses that took care of her and then what ends the blow up of news and all of that and then being like, oh. That bitch literally just got back from stabbing someone 16 times. Hmm. Yikes. Which, I mean, bedside manner doesn't change. No, it doesn't. But But your skin would be crawling and you would feel sick to your stomach. I I know I would. Mm -hmm. 
Miraculously, the moment the police returned to the hospital and told Ezra that they had found a brutal fucking crime scene, like a scene out of Fargo back at the dairy farm, wouldn't you know it? Ezra's memory came rushing back to her, and a full-length harrowing story came tumbling out. Now, before we lay Alex Woodworth's last living moments all out for you, just as Ezra told them to police, we need to backtrack and give you some details of the folks involved in this story. Ezra McCandless, Alex Woodworth, and Jason Mingle. Remember the person that Ezra was continuously asking to be called for on her behalf from the moment Don Sipple opened his front door. Ezra McCandless was born in Stanley, Wisconsin on October 6, 1998, but the name on her birth certificate was Monica Kay. Ezra's mother was just 14 years old when she gave birth to Ezra, but Ezra's biological father was not in the picture at all. When Ezra was only four years old, her mom's boyfriend actually legally adopted her, but her mom and stepdad eventually divorced when Ezra was 12. According to Ezra, there were lots of conflicts and fights in their house all throughout her childhood. After her mom and stepdad divorced, Ezra lived with her mom and Stanley and continued to maintain a relationship with her stepdad. During high school, Ezra became very artsy and philosophical. She loved to doodle and did lots of pen and ink drawings. She journaled heavily and was interested in reading about art and philosophy. If you Google photos of her, I don't recommend. It's not worth your time. No, but if you want a jump scare. (laughs) If you want a sudden jolt awake. Gosh. She's wearing huge round glasses, which apparently she actually needed. They weren't Mm. just there for decoration. Yeah. She's got a septum piercing and the big chunky cardigans and her preferred hangout spot is a coffee house. So a quintessential hipster. Yes. And this is related because of the septum piercing, but I need people who are younger and more in the know than me to drop in the comments. If a septum piercing indicates what I have seen several people on TikTok say, and that's that you're bi. Oh, and that was new to me because oh, I feel I like I, I see a... all con- like many, many people have. It. And that's not to say many, many mm-hmm. people aren't by, but I just didn't know that. I and, didn't know that. Yeah. And there was a viral TikTok going around where this girl was like, you want to know why girls get the septum piercing? And then she launched into it. It's because we want to eat. I can't say the P word because I, I hate, hate saying that word pussy (laughs) (laughs) but i was like oh i did not know that you just want to eat it and not tell everybody about it yeah i it just gives me like growing up around cows it just gives me a bowl like i just see cows no shade if you like them and think that they're cool and you can get it whatever but i just do not think they look good i don't think they flatter anything on people's faces it just looks like you have a booger hanging out of your nose and i know i sound like an old fuddy-duddy for saying that but shut the fuck (laughs) (laughs) oh man i mean i just don't like piercing so Mm. That's just yeah. me. I also don't like tennis shoes with jeans. I don't. Uh, yeah. I'm, we all have our preferences. Yeah, all the things that are raging cool now. What so. about me says I... No, I'm not going to say it. Never mind. Because <laughs> Kathy could listen to this. <laughs> I'm not... 
and our mother-in-law listens to this yes but that is an interesting i don't know and i need to know if that's universal or Hmm. not interesting yeah and also this does not look good on ezra so it doesn't no she also started to try out different names and pronouns before settling on she, her, and eventually had her name legally changed from Monica K to Ezra McCandless. And in case y'all were wondering, she chose that name McCandless after Chris McCandless, whom the book and the film Into the Wild are both based on. And all y'all need to know about that is that is an insufferable hipster book for insufferable hipsters and i can say that as somebody with a four-year creative writing degree there were people that worshipped that book and oh my god yeah all i know about that book is he was dumb yeah not the smartest yeah and ended very tragically and avoidably so but it's very much a deeply philosophical nobody understands me i just need to get away from it all and find myself and throw away so many truly wonderful things in my life and nobody ever really gets me and uh, it's very narcissistic and self-obsessed to know for me drivel and she also apparently used her own car as a canvas and painted different images all over it. Insufferable. <laughs> Hipster. <laughs> yeah. After she graduated from high school, Ezra went to college for a brief time, but eventually dropped out and moved back to Stanley, Wisconsin to live with her mom. And in true hipster fashion, she spent a lot of time hanging out at a coffee shop, one particular coffee shop in Eau Claire called Racy's Coffee Shop. In the summer of 2017, Ezra met someone at Racy's who also liked to hang out there, a 33-year-old medic with the Army Reserve named Jason Mangle. Despite their wide age gap, at the time Ezra was 19, He said that her youthful energy kept him energized and on his toes. He liked that she was spontaneous and kept him open to new experiences, and their relationship quickly grew serious enough over just a couple of months, and they actually moved in together into Jason's home in Eau Claire. And I do want to point out here that I have seen multiple sources say that Jason Mangle actually did not know that Ezra was 19. Mm. That when they initially met, she told him that she was much older, I think maybe just a couple of years younger than him. And so people that like to drag Jason Mangle Mm -hmm. as being a groomer or saying that their relationship was creepy, I choose to give him the benefit of the doubt here because even if she had been up front from the beginning that she was 19, she is of legal age mm-hmm. and it's not something that in this particular story bears that much of an issue and any dishonesty as we will go on to see was coming exclusively from Ezra. Mm-hmm. So she began their relationship with a lie by saying she was older than she was and waited until 
they were very close and then dropped that actually I'm much younger. So then mm. he would have been the bad guy for yeah. being like, uh, what? Mm, actually, no. Yeah. So that is just something I think is pertinent to point out. The two of them would often talk about marriage, and even though they weren't legally married, they would refer to each other with the pet names of husband and wife, and they continued hanging out together at the coffee shop where they met. It was here at Racy's that Ezra and Jason also met and became friends with a barista who worked there, 23-year-old Alex Woodworth, who was also working in the area as a substitute teacher. Alex had a Bachelor of Science from the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, where he had majored in philosophy and minored in biology. And at the time that the three became friends, he was actually going through the process of applying to graduate schools so that he could get a PhD in philosophy and become a philosophy professor. Alex took this goal of philosophy professor very seriously and was constantly reading books on philosophy and doing research in that area. He was also the oldest of four siblings whom he loved deeply, and he was loved just as much by them in return. Everyone who knew Alex knew him to be someone who genuinely loved people and wanted to help them however he could. And this is very heartbreaking. Alex's brother John actually said about Alex that he was always attracted to things that were seen by the world as traditionally unlovely, like bugs and spiders and such, which... And Ezra. And Ezra. Ezra is not even in the same category as a... I would rather kiss a spider. Bugs and spiders are innocent and perceived Mm -hmm. by the world around them to be things that are inherently creepy or gross or threatening. And so that just shows you the kind of truly empathetic, tender heart that Mm -hmm. he had that he would according to his brother, would go out of his way to seek out the things that people didn't like and would make it a point to take care of them. Jason would later describe Alex as one of the nicest people he'd ever met and a big nerd, not in a mean way, but in a loving way. At this point in Jason and Ezra's relationship, things had gotten a little tumultuous. Did I say that right? tumultuous you were very close thank you thank you i want to keep that Mm. show people my improvement (laughs) you should um again our last reel (laughs) jen is book smart caitlin's street (laughs) smart (laughs) you are also more book smart than you give yourself credit for i just can't pronounce words Mm. but if there is a trope we were gonna bring ourselves down into yes yes, that would be the thing you're street smart too you're Mm. just book smart more yes it is intelligent. I would have to consult a book prior to <laughs> handling a situation. Oh, well, according to Jason Mingle, Ezra had some emotional problems. And since the three of them had become very close together, Jason thought that Alex would be a good person for her to work through them with. And on the flip side, Alex reportedly struggled with bouts of depression. And Jason thought that he and Ezra could both help one another in those areas. Now, At this point in Ezra and Jason's relationship, when they had already gotten to be very close friends with Alex, the drama escalates. 
and an awesome podcast called Killer Queens breaks it down very well as follows. After Jason and Ezra had become close friends with Alex, Ezra learned that she was pregnant with Jason's child. It was in the fall of 2017. On October 6, 2017, Ezra and Jason drove to Minneapolis to have the pregnancy terminated. When they arrived at the clinic, Ezra told Jason that she wanted him to leave because she didn't want him to see her go through with it or see her in that condition. Jason would later testify that he spent the day in Minneapolis just bumming around, riding the buses, and exploring the city until he received a text from Ezra saying she was ready to leave. See, part of me is like, was she lying? Mm, Oh, that's really interesting. I never thought about that. And I don't want to, like, I, I don't want to say that. Yeah. And she's a shit person, but, yeah. like, and put that on her. But, like, was she, was she lying? The only reason why I would think that maybe in this particular case he was being honest mm-hmm. is because of what happens later. Mm-hmm. And it's not that she then is like, oh, yay, you know, I had this really difficult thing happened mm-hmm. i look what i did for you i got this abortion and now mm-hmm. we're even more inextricably linked that isn't what happened and she really kind of spirals into a difficult place that's true and i have not been through that experience personally mm-hmm. i believe in the person's individual decision to Mm -hmm. but that's something between you and your doctor but I do know that I mean it is a surgical procedure and it is something significant and many women do have whether it be like hormonal changes Mm -hmm. that happen because your body goes emotional And she did struggle with depression immediately after this to the point where it really pushed them apart. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there were other things going on, but Mm -hmm. for her, and again, every person's experience is different, Right. but for her, this seemed to be a significant emotional event that to me, this is the the shift where things really begin to go south Mm -hmm. and as we will go on to see you guys can be your the judge of that but a lot of times in these cases where things are kind of a toxic but then there's they go from bad to worse Mm -hmm. there's almost always something that happens that and it makes sense that this is the the situation jump starts it so it caused her to respond mentally and emotionally in initially a way that's perfectly normal Mm -hmm. I think but then you combine that with other things that were going unaddressed and it just got real bad Hmm. after Ezra's abortion she and Jason remained together but continued to drift apart while Ezra and Alex became closer. At this point, Jason was really pushing the two of them together. And from everything we've read, it seems like Jason either just didn't want to deal with what Ezra was going through, or he just couldn't. And Ezra basically ran into Alex's arms, 
because he was holding them open and was eager to help out both of his friends. Jason had even stated publicly that he felt like Alex would be a great support person for Ezra. And eventually, Alex and Ezra began sleeping together. And that brings us to February of 2018. During this time, Jason had to leave Eau Claire for a couple of weeks for military training. But before he left, because he was a little worried about Ezra being really depressed and just being off after her recent abortion, he actually approached one of his friends, a man named John Hansen. And Jason asked John if he could keep an eye on Ezra. Not in like a creepy way. He was just like, hey man, can you check on her every now and then? Make sure she's doing okay. Jason had known John for a few years, and apparently it's because they both like to play Dungeons and Dragons together and have both spent time in the military. So he was a military bro. And he clearly trusted him and knew him well enough to be like, hey, can you pop around and check on my girlfriend? While Jason was away, though, he received a call from Ezra. And Ezra said that she was moving out of their apartment and moving back in with her family in Stanley, Wisconsin. So he's like, um, what the fuck? (laughs) And he didn't try to fight her on it, but when he returned home, they kept in contact and would meet up occasionally. So it's a little unclear whether they actually broke up or just separated or what was going on, but whatever it was, it clearly wasn't final because they were still seeing each other and were probably sleeping together if they were meeting up occasionally. Mm-hmm. While she was living with her family again, her life there wasn't exactly the best. And on a few occasions, Jason would get a hotel for Ezra so that she could get away from the drama. And whenever he did that, he would also go and stay with her. But during one of these visits, Jason saw texts on Ezra's phone between her and the person he had asked to check up on Ezra when he was gone, John. For a while, Jason had actually been suspicious that Ezra was cheating on him, but he wasn't sure uh, that it was with John He thought it was with Alex. But after seeing the messages between Ezra and John, which were painfully, cringily sexually explicit, Ezra told Jason that John assaulted her and she tried to blame him. But the messages gave a very different story. I am sorry because these are bad. Ezra said to John, quote, are you going to pound this anytime soon? Sorry, I'm rude. John, not this week. I have Warren. John, it's all right to be blunt. Just got to be all right with it coming back your way. I really hope that Warren was like his cat, not like his kid. <laughs> Sorry, got the cat. <laughs> Oh my gosh. So this is when things have now gotten even more messy. Mm -hmm. 
And so this is when Jason decided to confront both Alex and John at the coffee shop, Racy's, about their relationship with Ezra and the alleged assault. It's said to have been a very public and loud argument between the three men. Jason told Alex, quote, you're my friend. You know I love you. How could you do this? Alex admitted to everything. Jason and Ezra's relationship ended for good, and Ezra blamed Alex for this. Mm. Mm. As if you're not the one having everybody dip their stick in your honey pot, babe. Right. God. Sources claim that Jason ended the relationship, and some say that Ezra ended it with both Alex and Jason at the same time. Interesting. Hmm. I guess... I... That's interesting because I feel like that would be significant to know. Mm-hmm. I don't think that Ezra would have ended the relationship with Jason. Mm-mm. So unless it was like, oh, I'm ending it with you. Like, feel bad for like come back after yeah. like chase me. Yes. Oh, yes. I could totally see that if that yeah. makes sense. Mm-hmm. It was in late February that Ezra sent an text message to Alex telling him to never talk to her again and Alex respected her wishes and never contacted her again mm-hmm. he was probably like bye yeah and also because he's a good person and isn't going to do anything exactly other than what she asked Jason and Ezra would still talk and text and Jason said that Ezra tried to desperately win him back mm. Jason said that she was manipulative and took advantage of all three of the men. Ezra sent Jason journals talking about how... Gosh, dang. Oh, God. Goodness. Talking about how she was sorry for betraying him and that she loved him, etc., etc., etc. She would try to hand-deliver them, but he told her that if she wanted to send them, she should send them by any other means than in person. This is because... This bitch was showing up places that he was, like at the coffee shop, uh, at his house, and was like, I need you to read these journals. And he was like, please leave me alone. So she was crossing over into... Well, and then already he was pushing off all the emotional baggage in Mm -hmm. their relationship onto another person. Yeah. Babe, he doesn't want your journals. Yeah. No, 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 Mm -mm. no. And Jason Mingle is not, and I am strictly talking about just in a relationship sense. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem like he was doing good things. Like Mm -hmm. you're pushing her off on somebody else, not trying to work through something with her Mm -hmm. that is very intimately connected to both of you being like the pregnancy the abortion all of that stuff and so I am not excusing what happened between Ezra Mm -hmm. and Alex but what I am saying is Jason that was not okay for you Mm -hmm. to push her away so hard towards somebody that you wanted to deal with right a problem that you caused which was that extremely distressing pregnancy and abortion for Ezra so that was not good that wasn't a good look on his part but also like calm down nobody wants your journal entries yeah (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, and that's also, that's very weird. That's very narcissistic. Like, that's just, like, if you could just read all of the stuff I like wrote you're... about myself. And then just stalking him. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. This is just very toxic and cringy. And then meanwhile, here's Alex doing exactly what Ezra asked and not contacting her at all. Right. Well, Ezra then brings allegations against John, again claiming that he sexually assaulted her. Ezra went to speak to the, with the police and spoke with a detective. Now, the detective talked with Ezra for a bit and got her side of the story, where she claimed that she and John were drinking and got a little tipsy. That is when Ezra blacked out and believes, believes she was assaulted. Mm. The detective looked through Ezra's phone records and found text messages, which indicated that she was lying. Then he probably had to leave and throw up in a trash can. Are you going to pound this? And it probably came with a picture. Oh my God. You know it came with a picture. And again, who wants that kind of picture? No. The detective also spoke with Alex, who didn't corroborate Ezra's story. Alex said that Ezra had confided in him that she did have consensual sex with John, but bitch regretted it, which is not sexual assault. Regretting is not sexual assault. No, it is not. Stop ruining men's lives by doing this fucking shit. I am sorry. I don't care if this is not, like, woke enough or feminist enough for me to say, but nothing disgusts me i mean there's there are things that disgust me more but in the this is so wretched to do this to an innocent person we have so many men in our life that are such good men that we love so Mm -hmm. much and the thought of some crazy selfish person doing this because they were embarrassed about a consensual sexual encounter is that should be criminal not even embarrassed she lit her her world started to crumble in mm, front of her because of her actions her consensual actions men don't be pieces of shit don't take advantage of women women don't be pieces of shit one is not any more or less capable than the other being pieces of shit. Mm-mm. Well, ultimately, the sexual assault charges were dropped against John. So, oh, Thank God. Poor. Man, John dodged a massive bullet. I'm not saying he did the right thing by cheating with her. That is wrong. Mm-hmm. That is very wrong. But did he do something criminal that he then deserved to have his entire no. life ruined over? No. Absolutely not. At this point, police are now questioning a hospital-bound Ezra for the second time. And I say hospital-bound because I'm just assuming that she's still there being checked out. She hasn't actually been arrested yet. And when they begin to ask her the same questions for a second time, now that they have seen Alex Woodworth's body... Suddenly, Ezra's memory returns, and she claimed that Alex dragged her into the back seat and carved that word boy into her arm as a cruel taunt 
because she didn't identify as that anymore. But as we know from the ER doctor, she'd actually carved it into her own arm. And as we know later on, after stabbing Alex to death. And why would she do this? I'm sure police at this point are like, what the actual fuck? She says she can't remember why she did this, but here's what she does remember. And this is the version of events that Ezra McCandless maintains to this day. Again, to this day. So here we go. The two of them were driving aimlessly out in the countryside and were close to the dairy farm when the car got stuck in the mud, but it wouldn't budge. So instead of calling a tow truck, Alex suggested that Ezra lay down in the back seat to breathe through the anxiety she was feeling. In Ezra's own words later on the stand, here is what happened once she apparently laid down in the back seat. Quote, when I laid down, Alex had started to come into the car with me and position himself above me. You could say straddled. Specifically, what I remember him saying is, Ezra is beautiful. Ezra is my shining sun. According to Ezra, I had betrayed him. I went back to Jason and he was upset about that and he thought he deserved me. He started to do things slowly and methodically. He first removed my glasses. And in this video, uh, guys, what we're doing right now is basically taking you through the court TV video of Ezra on the stand. So she's just sitting there in a monotone voice kind of going through this telling of the story. And when she gets to this point where she says, he first removed my glasses, the cross-examiner asks, when your glasses are off, can you see? Ezra then shakes her head sheepishly and says, no, not at all. Barely passed a couple inches in front of my face. Ezra goes on to say, he, meaning Alex, then takes my scarf and he places it over my eyes, and he asks me if I can see him. I say, no, I cannot. I can't see him, but I can feel him start to touch my clothes. I feel his touch on the hem of my sweater. I could feel a pull on it, and I wasn't really sure what at the time he was doing, but I could feel it give way and get looser. And if you remember when she showed up at Don's farm, that sweater was viciously cut open all the way from the neck down to the bottom hem. She then took off the scarf and saw that he had been cutting her sweater. Her second shirt was also getting cut at this point, and she could feel a slight prick, and then he started cutting through her pants. He started near the button, below the one on the front. Ezra then said at this point she could feel the knife start to graze and cut into her skin. 
She said she could feel it on her vagina and inside her, quote, hip region. Can I just say Mm -hmm. the vagina is not on the outside? No. Ma'am, that's your labia, Mm -hmm. most likely. Mm -hmm. Um, Or your perineum or just that your groin. Your groin. It's not your vagina, babe. No. So. Nope. Pick up a health book. Mm Mm-hmm. Sorry that this is, sounds a little bit rough to work through, but we are doing our best to tell you exactly as she told things on the stand while also giving you the wider picture of explaining it a little better because the way that she says it is just kind of wonky. So hope you're bearing with us. We'll also link all this court TV shit in the show notes because it's very fascinating to watch. Ezra then said she could feel a pinch and could tell that the knife had been making contact with her skin. She was frozen and said the thought was going through her mind that, quote, he, Alex, is going to do what he wants and take anything that he wants. He's going to just use me and I didn't know what to do. I was terrified and I couldn't move. My mind was running through all the possibilities of what he was going to do and wondering if he was going to kill me and then kill himself so that he didn't have to be alone. Ezra then says she felt the knife run down her pants and puncture her leg. Ezra claims she then reached out and grabs at, bats the knife as she feels it puncturing her leg and feels the bite of the blade pinching and pricking her every time she goes to block it. When she feels the bite of the blade, she pulls her hand away. She says that at that point, her leg was between his knees as he knelt over her in the back seat and she was gripping the back seat with one hand and decided to knee him in the groin. Alex reacts and drops the knife and she grabs it instantly and uses her free arm to push herself down into the footwell and says, That's when everything really starts to happen. At this point, I have the knife. I'm trying to get out of the car, and I'm saying I need to get out of the car. And Alex was still grabbing at me, and this was when I began to defend myself and stab Alex. Stabbing him anywhere and everywhere she could, she didn't know what was happening. She just needed to get away and out of the car. Hmm. Side eye? Side eye, and also, if we remember when the police found the car there was little to no blood Mm -hmm. inside of the car i am not a forensic expert but i would gather that if you are stabbing someone anywhere and everywhere you can i think it's gonna be a little messy yeah little messy yeah as ezra almost made it out of the car alex grabbed her by the throat and pressed her head against the back of the driver's seat his hand slid from her back to her throat and grabbed her hair. He was holding it very tight and was pulling her face towards him, and she stabbed him in the head, and then he got out of the car. What? Ezra wasn't trying to kill him, she says. She just wanted to get away as fast as she could. She continued stabbing him because he wouldn't let go and wouldn't let her out and and she was terrified. Alex was standing up near what was the green trailer, and he said, quote, he needed help going to the bathroom. So... Ezra, you know, after being attacked, Mm -hmm. she claims she got out of the car and approached him because she just wanted to help. So after 
all she's been doing is trying to stab him so that she could get out of the car. He then leaves her, gets out of the car, wanders over to the trailer, is like, I need help to go to the bathroom, and she's still in the car, and then is like, oh, I guess I'll get out of the car now. And go towards him. Yeah. This- The uh, details. Yeah. This hipster math ain't mathin' right now. Oh my gosh. And I think, like you said previously, at one point, the details, like- Mm -hmm. When you add so many obscured details mm-hmm. into a lie, mm-hmm. yeah, you just mm, you just keep making stuff up. Yeah, and isn't that one of the classic signs of people that are lying mm-hmm. when they give these elaborate stories? Is that almost the more elaborate detail they give, the more likely they are to be lying mm-hmm. because they think that by giving an insane amount of detail oh, they seem so honest or they're clearly remembering things as they happened. But Mm. when you have such a blatantly different crime scene, Mm -hmm. then they're not stupid. They're going to figure that out pretty quickly. So we go into Ezra approaching Alex. Mm -hmm. She claims as she approached him, he grabbed her again and pulled her very close and tight to his body and she still had the knife in her hand. She thought, he's going to kill me. And Ezra quickly reached around and stabbed him in the side, hoping he would let go. Ezra went back into the car and sat there shivering. Alex took his coat off and laid it on the ground near the trailer. He laid down on his coat and she heard him say that he had been waiting for this for a long time. What? Ezra heard him say strange things about roommates, and he kept saying he's been waiting for this for a long time. She was still sitting in the car and was breathing and saying out loud, what is happening? That's when Ezra decided she needed to go and get out. She saw Alex's phone and took it. In her head, she wanted to call the police. She wanted to get help. As Ezra left the car, she claims Alex was still laying on his coat near the green trailer. That's when Ezra left the scene and began making her way towards the farmhouse for help. On her way, she said she dropped the knife in the phone, and after comparing Ezra's account to the ER doctor's observation and the evidence at the crime scene, it didn't take long for investigators to come to the conclusion that the whole thing was staged. Oh, imagine that. Interesting. The way that Alex's body was found not lying on the ground next to the trailer on his coat, but hanging out of the car in a pool of blood. The complete lack of defensive wounds on Alex's hands and arms that surely would have been present if the two of them had struggled violently like Ezra claimed, coupled with the vicious stab wound to the back of his head and those bizarre, superficial, and most likely self-inflicted injuries on Ezra's arm and hand resulted, thank you God, in Ezra McCandless being arrested and charged on April 6, 2018, approximately two weeks after Ezra showed up at Don Sipple's door. Isn't it interesting to note here, I just thought about this, the violence with which Alex was stabbed Mm -hmm. just shows you the utter lack of care and empathy that 
she has for other people Mm -hmm. and the way even when she goes to injure herself it's very gentle and careful so that she ensures she doesn't actually get hurt but to stab someone in the head that that takes that takes strength that takes force that takes dedication that is the most brutal fucking way to stab somebody and then the groin like that's so don't we hear all the time about how these multiple stabbing deaths there's an underlying sexual Mm -hmm. possessive it's very there's something there freudian about the stabbing and the the sexualness of it all and i fully believe that in this case 16 times and 16 you times. claim you were defending yourself but you no. stabbed somebody 16 no. times no hmm. i could believe it if it was once or twice mm-hmm. and if you had far more serious wounds on yourself and that he the fact that he had no defensive wounds exactly very much shows that she was the one that took the first swing at Ezra's trial her defense team used a wide brush to paint a picture of Ezra being an innocent victim they said that Alex was the obsessed ex and that he had carefully orchestrated isolating Ezra in the car way out in the country so that he could force himself on her sexually. They said that Ezra, the true victim in this scenario, had only acted in self-defense out of desperation to escape and survive. And it is interesting to note here that when she took the stand at trial, Ezra's story of how she initially acquired the knife used to stab Alex changed pretty drastically. Initially, she told police that she had grabbed the knife out of his hands with her own as the two of them were struggling. But on the stand, she changed her story and claimed that instead of grabbing the knife out of his hand, she kneed Alex in the groin resulting in him dropping the knife so that then she could grab it and started stabbing. I think that she added that little layer in, again, Mm -hmm. pure speculation, because it's just another way of painting herself out to be the victim, Mm -hmm. that she was in a situation that she was completely powerless in, and then, oh, look, I do that self-defense thing that we as women are taught to do so often which is like knead them in the groin so that you can dis uh not dismember (laughs) disengage disengage or oh my god what is the word i'm looking for like incapacitate them and that oh she even tried to do something that wasn't Mm -hmm. killing him first to get away oh but then he dropped the knife and then i stabbed him 16 times just to make sure he couldn't get to me again right shut the fuck up the prosecution took a bit of a different approach instead of focusing on whether or not ezra did it which obviously she did Mm -hmm. they zoned in on why would she do this Why would this gentle, free-spirited, artist-type be pushed to violently stab her former lover to death? 
because of the one person she asked for over and over in the moments following the murder, Jason Mingle. The prosecution theorized that since Jason had always been protective of Ezra and quick to swoop in and take care of her, even after they had separated, she saw an opportunity in the drama between Jason and Alex to A, let Jason be her ultimate rescuer, and B, prove that Alex was the dangerous one all along. Once Alex was literally gone and his only legacy was being seen by the world as a dangerous predator, Ezra would be revealed as the sad, trembling victim and Jason would swoop in and rescue Ezra once and for all. Mm. To further prove their theory correct, it was an incredibly powerful moment for the prosecution when Jason Mingle walked into the courtroom to take the stand and Ezra McCandless lit up like a Christmas tree. Like a happy one, like not a, not like the Charlie one Brown. I wish she had lit up like, which is the National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, where the tree just bursts oh. into flames. <laughs> oh, yeah. Up until this point, it is not an exaggeration to say that she had displayed zero emotional affect in the courtroom, even when she was giving her version of the stabbing to the stand. If you're curious, we really encourage you to go on YouTube and watch this moment on Court TV. Watch it all. Get your opinions. Yes. Gather your senses. Because as you can hear, we clearly have our own opinions. When Jason Mingle walks in, (laughs) Ezra abruptly goes from being hunched over her notebook to sitting straight up. She starts polishing her glasses. She holds her shoulders back and adjusts the sleeves of her outfit which is a peach pink blazer layered with an olive green knitted sweater given to her by Jason. (laughs) She practically looks giddy and stares intently at him this entire time he is in the courtroom. And we should also note here that Jason's eyes look like fucking UFO saucers. I feel so (laughs) bad for him. He looks terrified oh, gosh. and she is just reveling in it it she really oh, has the that eyes. the insane i love you eyes it is terrifying Ooh. gosh and as you would think he is visibly incredibly uncomfortable to the point where he actually raised the wrong hand at oh, first no. when he had to swear in He would later tell Court TV that seeing Ezra wearing that green sweater made him extremely uncomfortable with good reason. All of these shenanigans now bring us to March 22nd, 2018, the day of the murder. On this day, Jason decided to stop into Racy's for some coffee. While he was there, though, he looked up, and there was Ezra. There's the jump scare. <laughs> the Wicked Witch music <laughs> cue. Ezra had flown in on her broomstick, <laughs> which was hovering right outside the front door. Ezra had returned to Eau Claire and said, wouldn't you know it, she was going to be moving back for good. She was telling everyone that she was turning over a new leaf and was getting back to her old self. She told Jason she was taking back her life and becoming Ezra again. 
in truth, she had been talking about driving back to Eau Claire for a while, but her dad said maybe that's not such a good idea, and he even tried to talk her out of it, going as far as to hide her keys. I guess she found them because there she was (laughs) in front of Jason. Oh my God. Another weird thing to note about this interaction is that multiple people noticed that Ezra appeared very disheveled and that she wasn't wearing any makeup, which was highly unusual for her. Apparently, the night before this, Ezra and Jason had sent one another over 600 text messages. Ezra told Jason that she was going to see Alex to return him some of his stuff and, oh my fucking God, share some of her journals with him. After Jason and Ezra talked for a bit at Racy's, Ezra left, but Jason said that she had, quote, fire in her eyes. That is terrifying. He had such a bad feeling in his gut about their entire conversation that he jumped on his bicycle and rode to Alex's house. Once there, he spotted Ezra's 2003 white Chevy Impala, with the car still running and music still playing and the driver's side door wide open, but Alex and Ezra in the house behind closed doors. This made him so nervous that he stood out in the yard for almost 45 minutes pacing back and forth before he finally walked to the front door without knocking. Jason described the environment as tense. He said they were talking inside, but it was just an intense conversation. Quote, you could taste the tension in the air. Lots of tension. Yeah. He said when he looked at Ezra and Alex, it was obviously them, but their faces looked different. He said they looked like they were wearing masks of themselves. It was easy to see for him that something was going on, but they pretended that everything was okay. That's when Jason suggested that they leave Alex's house and talk in a public space, hoping that that would alleviate some of the tension. Neither of them would do anything crazy to each other, and as they walked out, a police cruiser showed up. Hmm. A concerned passerby saw Jason walking back and forth earlier and decided to call the police to have him checked out. Dashcam footage from the police car shows officers talking to Alex by Ezra's car. She's sitting in the driver's seat, but can't be seen. And another officer is off camera talking to Jason, and Jason says, She gave me a vibe today, man. I don't know. It doesn't feel right. Something feels wrong. The officers continued to speak with everyone, and Ezra and Alex assured them that everything was okay. The officer said, I'd rather come here and check, and it be nothing than have something bad happen. Well, sir, did you knock on wood after you said that? Oh, God. After a while, the officers were satisfied that everything and everyone was okay, and so they left. Jason rode his bike to Ezra's car and talked to Alex briefly before Ezra drove away with Alex in the passenger seat. Oh, my God. And as we know, because of what goes on to happen, that would have been the last time that Jason saw 
Alex alive. And you can see this moment actually because uh, you can watch the dash cam footage from the police kind of sitting in their car and looking at what is happening in Ezra's front yard. I'm sorry, Alex's front yard. Ezra is in her car and you can see the two men on opposite sides of the car talking to each other over the top of the car. And Ezra is just right in the middle of them with this weird like blank look on her face. And that's such the perfect image of that toxic triangle. Mm. It just gives you a chill when you know what's about to happen. In the end, it only took the jury three hours of deliberation to unanimously agree with the prosecution of what actually happened between Ezra and Alex on the fringes of Don Sipple's dairy farm. The following events are how the prosecution presented them to the jury, and they began just hours following Jason Mingle parting ways with Alex and Ezra in Ezra's front yard after speaking with police on March 22nd. The mega folding pocket knife used in the stabbing had been acquired by Ezra from her dad in Eau Claire and was actually resting already in the console of her car when she went to Alex's house and convinced him to take a drive with her after confronting Jason Mingle in the coffee shop. The prosecution theorized that even though Ezra may not have planned the aftermath of the stabbing out very well, She had planned to kill Alex from the start. They said, as the two of them were driving down the dirt road, the car got completely stuck in the mud in the spot where police eventually spotted them. The two had both gotten out of the car to see how bad it was. And this part is our own little speculation. Because if you guys remember, when Ezra took the stand, She claimed that when the car got stuck and they both got out, she was practically hyperventilating with anxiety, so Alex suggested she go lie down in the back seat and focus on breathing. And we believe that part is actually true, because it seems like Alex, being the kind-hearted person that he was, would suggest this. And Ezra probably was incredibly on edge, but not because the car was stuck in the mud. So... Either the knife was already in Ezra's possession when the two of them got out of the car, or she went back under the pretense of lying down in the back seat and grabbed it out of the console. But either way, she realized that Alex's back being turned to her and his attention focused on the tires gave her an advantage, and she plunged the knife into the back of his head, then continued to stab him 15 more times. The prosecution theorized that with Alex's body being halfway out of the back seat, that either he tried to climb in to save himself from Ezra, or that at some point he managed to actually get into the back seat, maybe to try and barricade himself in the car, and the two of them had struggled. Or it was possible that after the attack, Ezra tried to drag his body out, but she wasn't able to. Unbelievably, according to Alex's autopsy, None of the stab wounds that Alex had suffered were immediately fatal, 
which means that if he had received immediate medical attention, he would have likely survived. Which also means that Ezra would have had to sit there and literally watch Alex die, and then spent the next few hours manipulating the crime scene to look like she was the victim. On November 1st, 2019, Ezra McCandless was convicted of first-degree intentional homicide in the stabbing death of Alex Woodworth. After her sentencing hearing, Alex's family was given the opportunity to give victim impact statements. During her statement, Alex's aunt, Crystal Woodworth, said of Ezra that, quote, Throughout the trial, we never saw any signs of sadness, shame, compassion, or the slight bit of remorse for what you had done, unquote. And even after this, Ezra had the fucking audacity to give this following statement following Alex's family. Oh my god. Quote, Hi, I would like to address your honor and the courts and Alex's family. Most of all, Alex's parents. I want to say how sorry I am that they have lost their son, but sorry doesn't cut it in my mind. That word is not enough and never will be enough for the loss, and I recognize this. I don't think I could ever find words that will be enough to express this, especially to them. The pain they feel is unimaginable. I want to express how sorry I am for this loss because it is such a great loss. I recognize and completely acknowledge this pain and I'm so sorry. I loved Alex very much and I also feel a great loss and I am so sorry. And thank you for letting me say this. Thank you. I would have launched myself... I oh my god did you hear once in that any even remote inkling assumption of responsibility nope none whatsoever she feels this loss she loved Alex she understands poor poor Ezra if you want your hearts absolutely gutted then watch Alex's families victim Mm -hmm. impact statements they are beautiful and moving and the amount of grief and pain and just the destruction that this selfish bitch caused to their family is unforgivable Mm -hmm. and even then it alex's mother says that she forgives ezra Alex's aunt gets up there and is like, we do not forgive you. And I'm fuck like. You. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fuck you. And fuck your mama. Oh, it's. Yeah. But the fact that they can say all those things and her to so get up there and say this shit. Mm. Uh, is, that is. Res- ugh, disgusting. And when the judge spoke during Ezra's sentencing, he mentioned what many of us are already thinking that Ezra's statement seemed insincere AF. He made it a point to tell her that, thank you. He then sentenced her to life in prison with the ability to petition for release after serving 50 years. His reasoning was that even if in 50 years she applied for release, Alex's parents would most likely be deceased and they wouldn't have to live through the heartache of seeing her possibly released back out into society. And we think it's very important that after such a sensational case, 
or the horror of this crime and our hatred of the killer can overshadow the most important person in the story, Alex. We wanted to leave you guys with a story from Alex's life that was written in a letter given to his parents at his memorial service from a man that they did not know. The letter said that this man had a son who would regularly go into Racy's coffee shop when Alex worked there. The two of them struck up a friendship, and the young man ended up confiding in Alex that he had actually been suffering from thoughts of wanting to end his own life. Alex, over the course of several conversations with this young man, was able to actually talk him out of it and pointed him towards resources that actually helped him in the long run to get the help that he needed. The father of this young man wanted Alex's parents to know that his son was alive because of Alex, because this was the kind of person who Alex was, deeply kind, perceptive, and eager to help those around him, even if it was just someone who came into the coffee shop. The complete and total opposite in every way of the person who so selfishly took his life. If you or someone you know is struggling with thoughts of self-harm, please know that there is an abundance of free resources at your fingertips. You can text the word CONNECT in all caps to 741-741 right now to be immediately connected to free 24-7 crisis counseling and access to ongoing resources. That's the word CONNECT in all caps to 741-741. You are not alone. Ezra is currently incarcerated at the Techida Correctional Institute in Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, where she makes shitty artwork that her mom tries to sell for her on Instagram to fund her appeals because she still claims to be the victim. And we can say, a fuck all the way off Ezra, her most recent appeal was denied. Like within the last month or two, there was a very recent one that I saw an article about being denied a good. Alex Woodworth currently rests in Dresser, Wisconsin at the Peace Lutheran Church Cemetery. And there you have it, guys. That is the case of Alex Woodworth and the piece of shit Ezra McCandless. <laughs> the only reason I'm laughing is because as Caitlin is saying that she has her eyes closed and her hands folded. In prayer. And we hope every one of her days is more miserable than the last. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I don't even feel bad saying that. And I just sincerely hope from with all of my heart that Alex's family has found some degree of peace Mm -hmm. I send them much much love and respect just fuck so yeah that was a doozy but a very gripping case and story and we hope you guys I even hate saying the word enjoyed but we hope you guys made it to the end (laughs) (laughs) 
And thank you for bearing with us as we experienced some technical issues last week with oh, this yes. episode. Yes. Um, yep. But you will now get to hear this episode echo free. So that uh, is, you're welcome. <laughs> that is much, much better. <sighs> and if you haven't already, make sure that you follow us on Instagram mm-hmm. at Camping is Cancelled. Uh, the same TikTok, Camping is Cancelled. Send us a Gmail to Camping is Cancelled at gmail.com for any case suggestions you may have we would also love to hear personal stories from you of your experiences with the paranormal cryptids anything spooky or creepy true crime yes true crimey all of that stuff we want to hear from you guys if you are curious too about the awesome company that we are partnering with turning hearts and how you can Um, get involved with that company to tell you and your loved ones life stories you can find that affiliate link on our instagram page as well as all of the other fabulous personal protection products that caitlin has carefully curated and added to our link tree many of which we personally use Mm -hmm. and love but we really wanted to give you guys some I don't know, ongoing resources isn't the right word, but we feel like when we listen to true crime so much, we just get ads for stuff like butt, what is, butt stuff, not butt (laughs) Butt stuff, stuff. Um, like bidets and the meal kit stuff and all of that stuff. Better help. Yeah, better help. I don't need therapy. I do need therapy, (laughs) but I don't, that's not what I need after it is but (laughs) but instead of hearing these types of stories and then feeling just overwhelmed with anxiety or paralysis Mm -hmm. like what can I do to not walk through the world obsessing over these kinds of things Mm -hmm. I personally it helps me to have really good personal protection devices Mm -hmm. with myself so We just wanted to uh, throw some of those that we like up there for you guys as well. And you can find those on our link tree in our Instagram bio. So, yeah, that's about all we got for today. Stay safe, kiddos. And come back for the Sodder family disappearance. Mystery. Is that mystery? Unsolved. Unsolved, yeah. It's a a wacky, crazy, but super interesting Mm -hmm. one. So, yeah, that's what we'll be talking about next week, which we actually knew ahead of time for once. So, (laughs) (laughs) until then, bye. bye.